welcome to Functional Fertility, the podcast where we show you how to demystify your hormones, up-level your lifestyle, and supercharge your fertility potential. And homocysteine can be toxic to the body in high levels. So for measuring it in the blood, we can see if levels for, for somebody are elevated, which could indicate a risk of cardiovascular disease. Specifically to fertility, we see it create more of a toxic element even for embryonic development. I'm your host, Dr. Kalia Waddles, and today we're going to take a whirlwind tour through genetic variations and environmental exposures so you can unlock your optimal genetic health for pregnancy and beyond. My amazing guest today is Dr. Kelsey Stang, who's a licensed naturopathic doctor with a vibrant private practice focused on reproductive health, fertility, and digestive concerns. She completed her medical training at the National University of Naturopathic Medicine in Portland, Oregon, and went on to work as an associate physician in a busy multidisciplinary clinic before opening her own private practice. She's completed year-long mentorships in functional medicine, as well as hands-on therapeutics, including RVGO techniques of Maya abdominal therapy. Her training and experience have been focused on fertility, environmental medicine, nutrigenomics, hormone imbalances, bioidentical hormone replacement therapy, and chronic gastrointestinal issues. She's just such a wealth of knowledge. I'm so excited to have her on the show. Welcome, Dr. Kelsey. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. This is just a delight. And we're kind of neighbors. I'm in Washington yep. State. You're in Oregon. So sometimes yep. I've referred patients to you. And I always tell them, she is the Oregon version of me and I am the Washington version of her. Do you feel like that? I totally feel like that. I feel like we have such parallel lives in so many ways. We like think about health and fertility in so many similar ways. It's really special. Yeah. So I'm excited to dive deep into some conversations with you today. Mm-hmm. Well, I am such a fan of all of the information that you provide, the education you provide on genetic variations. This can be a really complicated topic. And I feel like this is an area where we can really spiral. If we don't know, if we don't have a container for the information, we don't have a good sounding board. Our doc isn't comfortable talking about it. It can be such a source of anxiety. So this is one area I'm learning from you all the time. (laughs) I thought maybe we could just dive right into talking about genetic variations. Are you into it? Yeah. I love it. Let's do it. Okay. I really want to begin our conversation today oriented towards MTHFR, which if you're on the fertility forums, you're seeing this all the time. Can we start with just a little bit of a primer? What is MTHFR in general? Um, That maybe that's actually just the perfect place to start. Yeah, I think that's a good place to start because it is an acronym that might, you might be seeing around places and what does it really mean? What does it really do? Googling it can come up with some other things that you just really don't know what you're reading. So MTHFR stands for a mouthful, methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase, which is an enzyme in our body that activates folate, which is an essential vitamin needed for DNA synthesis, for fertility in many ways. And we're going to weave in all the different ways that it's important for that, I'm sure, through our talk But it's essentially stands for that enzyme. And what's important when we're thinking about how it impacts our health is that that enzyme is something that's going to be connected to the gene. So the gene has the same name, the MTHFR gene codes for the enzyme. 
And the enzyme is creating a reaction in our body that's either turning on or turning down the activation of folate, which is vitamin B9. Well, I think we read all the time about the importance of folate for fertility, which we we should definitely talk about in this yeah. episode. Sometimes when we're reading about MTHFR, we hear this term genetic polymorphism. Mm-hmm. And I think that can sound a little bit intimidating. Will you talk us through what do you mean or mm-hmm. how should we interpret that when we see this term genetic polymorphism? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's a really good distinction to make because when we think about genetic problems, or if you're going through fertility workup, you might have been talking to your provider about a genetic test. And this isn't always something that's on one of the, you know, fertility clinic genetic tests. So they might be looking for genetic mutations. There's a difference between a mutation and then a genetic polymorphism. And the big difference is that with the genetic mutation, there's going to be something like an addition or a deletion to a codon within the DNA, within the genetic blueprint. And for the polymorphism, it's really just an alteration in the protein. So if you think back to like sixth grade science, when you learned about the DNA, you know, chromosomes and codons, the the cytosine and the thymine and the adenine and the guanine, those are all the different proteins that are coding for the different um, chromosome lines, the codons. And with a genetic polymorphism, there's essentially a switch in those proteins where uh, cytosine might become a thiamine or where there was a thiamine, now there's two thiamines or something like that. So it's a, it's a subtle variation in how the enzyme is working and when that comes or how the gene is working, I should say, and then that transitions to how the enzyme, which is uh, intermediate in the biochemical process of our bodies, right, how that enzyme is working, whether it's helping a process work faster or maybe slowing a process down. Ooh, that was a great explanation. I just attended this cardio metabolic conference. Uh And one of the presenters said words matter. And it actually makes a difference if we say, you know, genetic mutation Mm -hmm. versus genetic variation. And just when I think about applying those terms to my own body, I would much prefer to say genetic variation. It's like, we're on this spectrum and there's variations of normal. So I really like that distinction. I think that's really helpful. Yeah. Good. Obviously Mm -hmm. these genetic variations have an impact on fertility. Will you talk to us a little bit about how the MTHFR variation specifically might relate to fertility? Yeah, there are so many ways that it can impact fertility. And in taking a step back a little bit, I should add that part of the importance of the MTHFR gene, the MTHFR enzyme, And then how it activates folate is that folate is required for making DNA. So if we're thinking about egg and sperm cells, which is essentially our DNA, right? Getting passed on to making a future human, we wanna be able to synthesize and make DNA efficiently and healthfully in order to move on and make a future human. So I know you and I always love talking about the topic of egg quality and sperm quality. Right. When we're thinking about having healthy DNA, it really comes down to having healthy chromosomes, healthy folate activity. So if we don't have enough of that folate in our body, in our DNA, in our DNA synthesis process, we're not going to be able to go on and make as healthy of egg and sperm cells as we possibly could. So that's one of the ways that I really think about it with fertility is really optimizing egg and sperm quality. 
They've even found in, um, there's a study in male mice that MTH, the MTHFR enzyme was the most active in the mouse testicles in the yeah. testes than any other organ system of the body. Really interesting, right? Yeah. So if we think about like, like that's like the generation, if we think biologically, like, yes, the ovary, the, the testes, that is like, that's procreation. We need to prioritize the vitamin status in those tissues immensely. Um, other implications for, for, for fertility specifically also come down to follicle development. They found in folks with diminished MTHFR activity in the body or low folate levels that um, it was more likely for follicles to rupture prematurely. So that would lead to anovulatory cycles. Um, I also see it hugely implicated and something that I always check in folks who've had a pregnancy loss. Because, right, thinking about chromosomal health and really just the entire terrain of the body, how is that? nutrient, how is that vitamin and DNA synthesis really performing in the body and how can we optimize that? And getting that information from the body can be really helpful. Yeah, well, I you, you mentioned this a little bit. You said that you're really thinking about this for patients, especially recurrent pregnancy loss. That's a big one that we're thinking about. Mm -hmm. What, what type of patient, if you could give us kind of a, a persona, what type oh. of patient gets you thinking about oh, maybe there's an MTHFR variation that I should be considering here. Is there something about their history, their symptoms, their lab work, their physical exam that kind of escalates your index of suspicion and you want to do some testing? Yeah, really good question. Definitely a pregnancy loss is someone that I love looking at the genetic polymorphism um, status for. And also even someone who has been trying for six months or more who has been unsuccessful, someone who has been unable to get pregnant for a period of time. Um, and ideally we can look at both partners, right? As I mentioned there, how important it is for sperm health too. Um, but then also thinking about folks who have high homocysteine levels, which we're gonna talk, I hope, let's talk more about homocysteine. That is definitely, whatever that comes up in ice cream, all of my patients for homocysteine, it's a part of my foundational lab work because I want to be able to see if there's an issue there with how they're metabolizing folate or B12. Um, and then the other one is anyone who's had a past pregnancy that has led to something like preeclampsia, preterm labor, um, any complications in previous pregnancies or even with off previous offspring like neural tube defects or those midline defects, things like tongue tie, all get me thinking about MTHFR variations in the body. Um, and then further, like even removed from fertility specifically, if there is a family history of mental health concerns, like family history of anxiety, depression, addiction is another piece that I really like to look at their MTHFR and, and other genetic polymorphism status. Mm -hmm. That was super helpful. I have a million follow-up questions. Yes. So, one, one question for you, which maybe no one has the answer to this. I don't know, but patients tell me all the time, or they'll send me messages on social media and say, I want my doc to do some testing and they refuse. Hmm. I'm still trying to understand why this is so controversial or hard to access? Do you have any insight about that? <laughs> I mean, my, my thoughts on it, what I, my response is usually that it isn't the provider. It's more, in my opinion, the insurance model. 
It's more of a like the system that is limiting because, you know, most providers in a traditional healthcare setting are following algorithms for you have a family history, you have this symptom, we can order this test because it will be covered by your insurance. But yeah, we know in the functional medicine world that there's so much missing when we just look at those pieces because every person's body is an individual body and they might not have a family history, but they could be developing something that we want to check in on or, or whatnot. But I really think that it's more of like the insurance model. And I also see, because I, wor- I work with folks all over, I also see a big difference between like accessibility for healthcare on the West Coast versus places like the Midwest and yeah. East Coast, where some providers are more willing to, to run more comprehensive labs and others aren't. And yeah, I think it's more of a, an issue with the system, unfortunately. Well, now the door of testing is open and we have to walk through it because this is, I think, maybe one of the most important questions that Mm. anyone listening to this episode is going to wonder now, what is my MTHFR status? How can I test this? Are there other, you mentioned homocysteine, so we should definitely go there, but just starting looking at some genetic testing, Mm -hmm. will you, will you talk to us about what that looks like? Is it blood? Is it a tissue swab? Mm -hmm. Uh, What does that look like as far as collecting the sample? Yeah, the sample is really easy. It is just a little cheek swab. Um, You can also collect MTHFR or run an MTHFR panel through blood. So that can be kind of a standalone, look at it through a serum blood draw that your provider could potentially order. Um, In the past, it used to be really expensive to order MTHFR labs. I don't think it's that anymore to order through serum. I I think it can be relatively affordable, but always something to check in. With I've been hit with unexpected immense lab bills before, and I know that it's not fun. Um, so you can run a, a homocysteine, in, I'm sorry, um, MTHFR in the serum, or you can do a, t- a, t- a cheek swab, a tissue swab. And the tissue swab is nice because, and that's usually what I recommend to get more of a comprehensive genetic panel. One of the things I always tell my patients is that MTHFR is one tiny piece to the puzzle. It influences many of our other genetic expressions and our enzymes. And so when we get to see that whole picture, um, I see so much more benefit for that. But if MTHFR is what you're really curious about after listening to this or research that you've done on your own health or health history, then you can totally ask for it through a serum blood draw. And that might be the easiest way to go. Yeah. Super helpful. Cheek swab is my preference too. I actually just did some testing on my own to look at my MTHFR and my COMT and my receptors and my APOE status and all these cool things. So yes, all the snips. Yeah. We love data. (laughs) We love, we love all of that. So that is really, really helpful. And I, I think when I first started looking at ordering these panels, even not that long ago, they were very expensive. Yes. And just mm-hmm. in the last few years, I've seen prices become so much more reasonable. So I'm glad you brought up that point because mm-hmm. um, usually, maybe you know a way around this, but usually for me, it's out of pocket yep. cost, right? But it's becoming more uh, affordable, I think. Yeah. I think it's becoming more affordable um, and worth looking into in that avenue, I think, as to how much it might cost. And then yeah, the, even the full genetic panels that I run are less than $200. They're pretty, pretty comprehensive and pretty affordable, again, at this, at this stage in the game. Yeah, especially for the depth of information that you're getting. Like you're saying, that Absolutely. applies to so many body systems, fertility and mood disorders and beyond. So I, I think that that's a very worthwhile investment. Now, let's return to the homocysteine piece because yeah. I think this is another nice way where I've sometimes seen providers that I'm working with, they're a little bit more 
um, ready to order a, a homocysteine than a full genetic panel. So let's talk about how you're using homocysteine in practice a little bit. Yeah, great question. Um, I think I mentioned that I I run a homocysteine on most of my patients just kind of as foundational lab work because it can be a really great insight on B12 and folate levels. How are you synthesizing B12 and folate? So in the biochemical flow, folate goes through many variational processes to become MTHFR, that enzyme where it's activating folate. And then it moves to complex with B12. And then it moves through multiple different systems to become homocysteine. Um, and by systems, I don't mean systems, multiple different like, you know, methionine, SAMe, different stages of um, cellular change, not cis, not body systems. I didn't want that to be confusing. Um, but eventually through that pathway, we get to homocysteine and homocysteine can be toxic to the body in high levels. So for measuring it in the blood, we can see if levels for, for somebody are elevated, which could indicate a risk of cardiovascular disease. Specifically to fertility, we see it create more of a toxic element even for embryonic development. So it's something, especially my fertility patients, I wanna see if their homocysteine is high. Is that a cause to their previous pregnancy loss? Is that a cause to their challenges in conceiving? Um, and then it can also give me insight into, well, wait, maybe there is an issue with their MTHFR um, gene or enzyme if their homocysteine is elevated, because all of those all of those molecules are recycling with one another. So if we're not able to clear homocysteine out well through the B12 and folate pathway, then it's going to back up and be elevated. So it can kind of be an insight, a backdoor insight into how we're understanding folate levels in the body, B12 levels, and so forth. I love we're taking a deep dive into biochem with this one. And I feel like I have to pause at this point because I am such a proponent of using our fertility workup to help us predict risk for chronic disease later in life. Oh my that, gosh. This yes. is the perfect opportunity when we have these patients who maybe otherwise would not have accessed care, but now they have this motivating factor. They want to get pregnant. They want to have a healthy pregnancy and then want to enjoy vibrant, good health so that they can be with their Absolutely. family. So sometimes, uh, I originally, I think I came to this from kind of a defensive place because people would say your preconception screening panels are so big Mm. and yes, they are extensive and comprehensive. But when we look at all of these things like homocysteine, like the fasting insulin and lipid panels and high sensitivity C-reactive protein, and all of these things that are risk enhancing factors for cardiovascular disease, for example, Mm -hmm. now we're doing harm reduction, risk reduction. And I think that's so important. So important, like preventative healthcare, right? Absolutely. Not to mention like the burden of the body on pregnancy, right? Doubling our blood volume. How is that increasing our, you know, the burden on our cardiovascular system? So knowing these bits of information, even before pregnancy, I've absolutely been able to see how we can support and prevent issues within pregnancy and postpartum when we know things like homocysteine or HSCRP values. Absolutely. And I know this isn't true for everyone, but for me, I had, I was never more motivated to make lifestyle changes, behavior change than when I was trying to get pregnant, because now I understood the why, and I felt like I could really anchor into that. So now is the time to make these changes. Is that what you see too? Absolutely. Totally. And I think there's something so inspiring about really, um, 
really up-leveling and enhancing your health for parenthood because you want your children to be really healthy, right? So you want to incite healthy eating and healthy lifestyle habits. And all of that really starts from how you are also taking care of your body in that preconception journey phase. And that really does permeate through generations. It's really special. Transgenerational health. We might need to do a whole follow-up episode yes. just on that topic. It's such <laughs> yes. a big deal. And clearly so we share this passion, you know, empowering the, the fertility journey and giving our patients actionable tools and takeaways to support their healthy conception and pregnancy. So I'll, I'll bring us back now to our, our genetic variations we're talking about. Let's say we do some testing um, and we find that maybe we, we do need a little support to optimize our genetic pathways. Let's talk about some things that we can do in terms of diet, lifestyle, supplements. I think we're, we're, we're both food first type of doc. Yeah. So let's talk oh, yeah. about diet first. If you, if you find that someone maybe needs a little support, they have an MTHFR variation that's making you feel like they need an, a little nutrient boost. How are you supporting them through nutrition? That's a really good question. And it's something that I do with most of my patients because yes, food first, food is medicine. The better we can nourish our bodies, the better that transitions to our health for sure. So there are a lot of really good foods. I call them methylation supporting foods that we can add into our diet. And that's things like eggs, uh, salmon, sunflower seeds, pumpkin seeds, sesame seeds. So like seed cycling, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? In and of itself is helping with hormones. Yeah. It's helping with providing more methylation supporting factors through the, through the body as well. Um, greens, so spinach, dark leafy green vegetables, legumes, beans, lentils, um, daikon radish also helps support methylation. Um, those are like uh, beets, spirulina. Those are a lot the, of my favorites. Faves. I mean, the the meals I can sure. imagine with those alone. You said salmon and seeds as a Pacific Northwesterner. I'm all about yeah. that meal plan. But I think what you're highlighting is that there's really a variety. So, you know, so much. You're, you're likely to find something that you love within that. And you reminded me, one of my teachers, Kara Fitzgerald, she's also a naturopathic doctor. She's been using this term methylation adaptogen. Yes. Which I, adore and think is so cool. Okay. So, so much we can do with nutrition. How about let's take this to the next level. I kind of think about our therapeutics in the hierarchy. Maybe this is just how it works in my mind, but food is at the very bottom. And then I kind of move on to, um, botanicals, nutraceuticals, mm -hmm. supplements. So in terms of supplements, what types of products are you bringing on board? Yeah. I mean, the big one to talk about in this category is a prenatal, right? Yeah. How are you taking in your B vitamins? Um, and the big difference between, in this conversation of folate, between the two is going to be folic acid and folate. And I want to insert something too in the middle there about food with regards to folic acid is that we can be taking a prenatal that has active folate. And I'll kind of talk about the differences between those in the prenatal form in a second. But we can be taking a good prenatal with folate in it, but we're still eating foods that are fortified with folic acid, which are things like enriched flour, breads, pastries, pastas, um, cereals. And the folic acid, the synthetic version of the B9, can sit in the receptor for folate. And then that prenatal you're taking that's active folate that you're paying extra money for that is like the good one to take isn't able to get in that receptor. And the folic acid basically like nullifies that good folate. So if we're really focusing on optimizing folate in the body, 
Then I also often suggest limiting foods that have fortified fortified wheats or fortified flour and folic acid. Um, so that transition, that conversation, kind of the bridge <laughs> from food yeah. to supplements too, is that taking a, a prenatal or a multivitamin with really good active folate. So that would be like the L5 MTHF or even folinic acid. Um, there's a couple of different variations there, but essentially you want to look for the prenatal not having folic acid. And if it doesn't list it on the label as to what form it's in, then it's most likely folic acid. I feel like at this point it usually lists yeah. it. And the same goes for B12. Um, I also usually avoid the B12 form cyanocobalamin and really lean towards the methylcobalamin or adenosyl or hydroxycobalamin as, as options for B12 that are more supportive of the methylation process. That was so helpful. You already knew where I was going with this next prenatal question of, do we need to be <laughs> careful? Do we need to read labels? So mm -hmm. that was really helpful. I know that you are a uh, gut health lover as am I, and I feel like we could take a brief a tour just really quickly and talk <laughs> about um, how you actually need to be aware of your gut health to absorb your B vitamins as well, right? Because there's so 100%. many steps that are required to actually absorb your B vitamins. And something I see all the time is um, we're, we're hustling, we're working, we're eating on the go and we have low stomach acid or hypochlorhydria, and then we're not actually able to absorb our B vitamins very well. So sometimes in all of these conversations that we're having about optimizing our nutrition and eating the right forms of things, I also want to take a moment and say, can we also mm. think about our meal hygiene and the environment in which we're taking in our meals and just had to say that because I'm sure you have that conversation all the time. All the time. I had it three times this morning. <laughs> myself. I also have it with myself. Yes. Yeah. Um, a hundred percent, 120%. Um, honestly taking the moment to take two full deep breaths before taking your first bite of food, bite of food is like a total game changer. We shift that parasympathetic into that parasympathetic nervous system state. We're able to absorb all the nutrients from our food, doing the same when we take our vitamins, right? Like this is something nourishing for my body. I'm bringing this in. I'm welcoming this in to be absorbed, to help my body along this process. You know, what state are we bringing that stuff into our bodies in? Absolutely. Yes. Oh, I love that invitation of I'm welcoming these nutrients in. Yeah. I'm going to use that now. That's lovely. I do it with my kids all the time too. You know, like this, this is your fuel for your body. Like this is nourishment. How are you, how are you nourishing your, your body? It's really good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I have, I have a follow-up question. That's going to, it's going to shift us directions a little bit. So before I do that, I just want to kind of tie up our genetic variations portion with a bow and say, um, well, I guess here from you, is this something that if I've, if I'm just starting to try to conceive, I, I haven't had, I don't have a history of pregnancy loss. I'm just thinking about this for the first time. Do I need to do some testing? Is this a watch and wait kind of thing? What's your approach in terms of, you know, the, the timing of when testing is appropriate? Really good question. I don't jump to it right off the bat for folks. You know, I'm, I'm more likely to do a screening through blood work okay. and checking in on like a homocysteine level through labs. Okay. Um, and then for me, it's usually like a triage, of course, of, oh, are there gut symptoms? Let's really optimize gut health. Are there hormone imbalances? Let's work on the hormone imbalances. If there, I would say if there's a family history, again, of, of heart disease or 
um, anxiety, depression, a lot of mood symptoms, then I sometimes do jump to doing a genetic panel first. And the way I think about it is, and this might be, you know, some in some transition to maybe where we're taking this conversation is that our genetics are our blueprint. It's like the, the guideline for our body. It's not a diagnosis. It's not a prognosis for how your body is going to act or function or what your fertility is going to be like. It's really the blueprint for our body. And then we get to decide where we put the couch and where we put the, the kitchen and the refrigerator and all the different things like the environment for how our body is, is working. Um, so sometimes getting that information can be helpful because the blueprint doesn't change. It's something we can come back and check in on postpartum or in menopause and say, oh, hey, I remember now you have a hard time, you know, breaking down this particular nutrient or whatever it is. Let's support that part of your body right now. So I think in general for like, again, the con conversation of preventative healthcare, getting the test might be worth it if it's something you're interested in. Is it the thing that might give you all of the information and the answers, there might be multiple things, right? Because our bodies are so dynamic and there's usually multiple factors at play. Long-winded yeah. answer. <laughs> no, that was beautiful. And I want to revisit what you said that if you do some testing and you find out what your genetics look like, that's not a, that's not a diagnosis, right? I, I was at a conference and one of the speakers said, genetics are the part of your story that's written in pen, but epigenetics are the parts that's written in pencil. And I love, I love that epigenetics are that, you know, all the modifiable things that we can do that influence how our genes are expressed. And so I think yeah. about that all the time that, okay, fine. The genetics are written in pen, but there's still this story that we've written that we can change at any time by altering our environment. Absolutely. And that's the big shift around empowered healthcare that I love because it isn't just a diagnosis or like, this is what your life is going to be like. It's a hundred percent. Like there's so much that we can do within our lifestyle, our nutrition, the way we're approaching, taking care of ourselves that can improve our genetic expression. Mm -hmm. Yes, we are so aligned. I we're definitely <laughs> vibing on that whole concept and on a related topic you talk about really being mindful of your environmental exposures. I talk about this too. It's so important. It's really vital to support our genetic health, but also to prevent harm to our endocrine system, which has implications in fertility. I mean, many, many implications. Mm -hmm. So when you're working with patients for your preconception counseling, they decide they want to get pregnant. They come in to see you want to just make sure everything is looking good. How do you screen for environmental exposures? Is it a questionnaire? Is it your thorough history collection? Do you do some testing? I'd love to mm -hmm. hear your perspective, how that goes. That's a really good question. I, I kind of think I operate in the space that we all live in a toxic environment. Yes. So I'm usually always doing some layer of um, toxic world management <laughs> for my patients. Toxic world management, yeah. <laughs> so I don't do a whole lot of extra screening or I, I definitely take a thorough history and there are many things I'm looking for in there, things like headaches or chemical sensitivity or lots of food intolerances skin eruptions like eczema, psoriasis, other autoimmune type conditions. I'm always looking for those as symptoms, right, of that immune dysregulation or burden on the body with regard to potential toxic exposure. Um, the other layer to that is that, I, yeah, I generally just kind of support most folks. I do, I do, do a bit of mycotoxin testing. Um, I find that that is really 
interesting and insightful in some patients who are trying to conceive, especially if they know they've lived in houses with mold or have other symptoms of mycotoxin illness, like um, respiratory symptoms or sinus symptoms, or yeah, there's a whole, that could be a whole separate conversation. Um, But that's probably the biggest, like, like biotoxin environmental exposure testing that I do is with regard to mold exposure. Yeah. Yeah. I have a very similar approach. I use a questionnaire. It's called the toxin exposure questionnaire. And really it just helps me to figure out, are there occupational exposures going on? Do you live near an exposure? Mm -hmm. Just because it gives us an opportunity to have a conversation about whether we can change any of those things, or if it's just the way it is and we need to work with it. So I'm, I definitely agree in some, in some patients, when I do micronutrient testing, I'll get some heavy metals, toxic blood elements, but not for everyone. This is personalized precision medicine. And I think we can deduce from our, our history collection of testing is worthwhile. And for some people it is Yep. along those same lines. I kind of have this philosophy that I don't want my patients to conceive if we are in the midst of a very intentional detox. I use the Mm -hmm. word detox kind of cautiously because I think it gives people this idea of like really drastic, I don't like water only fasting or just really heavy duty detox, detoxification protocols. And that's not typically what I mean. I usually mean like fresh fruits and vegetables and lots of water and exercise and some sweating and, you know, pretty gentle things. But still Mm -hmm. when we're mobilizing toxins into the bloodstream, I don't love if we get pregnant right in the middle of that, because we have this follicular maturation process. And I want that to happen kind of in the absence of mm-hmm. toxins being mobilized all the time. Absolutely. Are you aligned with this philosophy? How do you hold this conversation with patients? Mm-hmm. Because um, I think most of us know when we wanted to get pregnant, we're like wanting to get pregnant last week. And so yeah. having the conversation that we have to wait a little while can be really frustrating, but I think it's a really valuable conversation to have. That was my very long-winded way to say it's valuable <laughs> to talk about. It's super valuable to talk about. And it's a really it's a really tricky conversation to have. And maybe you feel this way too, right? Just like you say, if someone comes in, they've been trying for months and you get like all the alarm signals are going off of like, oh, wow, we've have, we've got a lot of deeper work and healing to do here. Like maybe we need to pump the brakes a little bit and having that conversation can be really, really challenging. Um, And I do have that conversation occasionally. And it usually comes from the place of, hey, everything about your health looks okay in the timeline that we're looking at. I'm not concerned about your age or your fertility potential long-term. What I'm more concerned about is right now, this potential exposure or this potential situation that we can absolutely modify over the next, you know, six weeks at most. I don't think I've ever done a detox. Well, I guess when we come talk about mycotoxins, sometimes that can take more of like a 12 week situation, but that's going to set the stage for so much ease and, and, confidence moving forward on a journey, knowing that you've taken care of this, of this element to your fertility journey. So it is a hard conversation to have. And I would say like you, most people aren't, um, aren't in the space where they really want to take that time. So usually I just adjust and do a modified version of general, of general health support, cellular health support, um, general liver support, things like that, that can really help, um, maintain, definitely not add any more toxic burden to the body if they're not willing to take that time off. But if they are, I mean, my ideal patient is someone who's like six months before they even want to try to get pregnant. 
when they come in, I'm like, yes, we get to do all the good deep work of really optimizing their, their egg quality, the sperm quality, inflammation, all of the things, you know, um, their, their folate status, everything kind of comes into play. But if, you know, they're already on the journey, we just do a modified version and it's still really effective really effective. Still really effective. Yeah, I yeah. absolutely agree. I love when people come in and they say, I think I want to get pregnant in six to eight months. And I saw yes. on your Instagram that I should be thinking about this, you know, looking into the future and setting my goals. Thank you. This is why yes. we put, try to put out the word and <laughs> why we talk about this, why I talk about it when we're doing wellness exams, when people are, you know, well before they're ready, just so they know. 100%. There's lots of prep that can be done. So yes, thank yes. you. Very approachable, uh, very reasonable method that I think most people would be able to follow. So as we kind of um, come to the end of our environmental chapter, our exposure chapter, yeah. do you have maybe your top two or three tips that you, you kind of mentioned some of them, but maybe your top two or three suggestions for supporting the body's inherent cleansing abilities. Mm -hmm. Um, yes. And they're going to come off as like so basic and so <laughs> simple, but the reality is not everyone's doing it and, and, or not everyone's doing it well. So the first one is drinking water. Like, yeah. right. How many people are like, Oh, I don't drink enough water. Like the message I always tell patients is when you feel thirsty, your body is already dehydrated, right? We need to be drinking good water. It's such an amazing way to cleanse and detoxify inherently through our body systems every day, all day. And the, the step further to that is drinking good quality water, right? Filtered water, making sure you're having clean water. Um, I love the new environmental working groups database where you can check your water status. It's like, yes, finally a source for that, a resource for that. So drinking enough good filtered water is probably not my number one. <laughs> I actually, I'm going to co-sign this one because I am a frequent underhydrator, and I actually know that that can be really hard. And sometimes that health goal alone feels like a big challenge. And you and I could probably talk for a thousand years about cervical, yep. about fertile quality cervical fluid. And we know how important hydration is yes. to make that beautiful egg white cervical fluid that we need to have successful conception. So hydration all the way. Yep. Yep. And like, again, such an important way that we detox flushing through our bodies, right? Um, the second one that I really love is castor oil. Yeah. Um, my, like my favorite, probably favorite old school naturopathic treatment regime is castor oil. So castor oil packs, I even simplify it and just rub castor oil in my belly before bed at night. Like I'll do the pack, you know, a few times a week to get that heat it really helps to permeate it. But what castor oil does topically when we rub it on our belly is that it has a high affinity for the lymphatic system and the lymph is sits, you know, kind of close to the skin, right under the skin, right? So it helps to drain through the lymphatic system, helps to detoxify and cleanse the body in a natural and supported state. It's not really in my opinion, at least pushing a lot of detox pathways. It's just whatever is already flowing through the lymph lymph system, it helps it move a little bit faster. It helps it move more efficiently. So, and that can go even applied like more over the liver space if you're really trying to do a little bit more targeted fertility, um, sorry, liver, liver support yeah. with castor oil. 
Oh, I love um, a good castor oil pack. You, I, I just have to chime in and say, I'm yeah. all on board with that recommendation. And maybe this is where you're going and I don't want to steal your thunder, but it seems like um, when I use castor oil packs with patients and they are constipated, it really helps them to have a bowel oh, movement. Yeah. So that's just ties into this whole cleansing thing too. Like you need exactly. to be pooping every day. And the castor oil is wonderful for so many reasons. A hundred, 100%. It's one of my go-tos for patients with constipation is, yep, the topical castor oil. Love it. Love it. Yeah, I think if I were to add one more, it would really be learning and educating yourself on exposures. So, right, removing the obstacle to cure. We can detoxify our body all day long, but if we're still using toxic products and um, eating a lot of processed foods or things like that, then it's going to be a constant uphill battle. But doing the things to help support detoxification as, as well as, you know, upgrading, up-leveling things in your environment to remove exposures is, is really where the long-term improvement comes from, I think. Yeah. When I was in naturopathic medical school, my professor who taught our, our cleansing, we called it depuration therapy class. He said, when it comes to removing exposures, if it's a five-step plan, the first three steps are avoid, avoid, avoid. <laughs> so and that's really stuck with me. And it's so true. Um, yes, those were simple, but in the best way possible, we needed to hear those. So thank you so much. We have to close our episode with some fun questions. I always okay. want to end with some things that are fun that help us get to know you. So my first question to you is if you could go back in time to when you first started thinking about getting pregnant, what advice would you give yourself? Mm, what a good one. <laughs> a tough one. That's why I asked. It's a tough it. one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I should share with my first pregnancy, I spent about a year and a half or two years really focusing on my health. I was in not a good place with my health. I was coming off the pill. I was not having periods. I had migraines and eczema and I was constipated all the time. I was in a, not a good place there. And I did a lot of the deep work with a naturopath at the time to really optimize my gut health, my hormones. We really worked on stress management. I love to share that I was at the time a yoga teacher, which is always like, oh, like so Zen. And I was also in medical school, right? I was teaching yoga. I was in medical school, but it was like, I was so, I had so much going on. I was so stressed. So we really worked on stress management. Yes. Even people who practice like meditation and yoga still need a reminders to, to calm down and to not be in control of everything. Um, So I worked on my health a lot in the path leading up to getting pregnant. Uh, So in that regard, I almost don't know how much I would change as much as, um, hmm. It's okay. It doesn't have to be a suggestion. You could go back and validate (laughs) yourself and say, you know what, John, well done. I will. I, well, I, what I would, what I guess where I was going with that is my intention wasn't that I was going to get pregnant as much as my intention was that I was going to get, I was going to get really healthy. Like I wanted to feel really good in my body and be really healthy. And what came of that was a really healthy pregnancy. So I guess if I, maybe what I would go back and tell myself is like, keep up the good work. (laughs) and Like all the work you're doing is going to maintain and, and, um, you know, transmute into this really really healthy family that you're going to grow. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. We do this for fertility and beyond. So that actually is such a nice answer. Yeah. Well, yes. my last fun fact, fun trivia to get to know you is 
what are you loving to learn about right now? When you go to PubMed, <laughs> what are you searching for? What's what's on your desktop right now? We need to know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I have two things. I'm really I'm really thinking a lot lately about nutrients, like specific nutrients for fertility, things like selenium, manganese, zinc, like how, like, I feel like I have a good foundation of how those nutrients work, but I want to know more. There's something like on the surface that I feel like I haven't quite un, unhinged in terms of how all those different nutrients can impact the different aspects of our health and our fertility. Um, and then the other one is probably metabolic health. I feel like there's so much interesting research and conversation happening right now around insulin and blood sugar. And that is something that I'm always having conversations with folks about and always really feeling like I want to, to, to learn more, to dive deeper into how we can optimize our metabolic health and blood sugar balance. Yeah. Well, I know you're going to learn about those things and then translate them into these really <laughs> easy to understand bite-sized educational pieces. I can't wait. Dr. Kelsey, thank you so much for spending time with me today. This has just been such a pleasure to chat with you. And I so so appreciate your time. I hope we can do it again. I would love that. It's really good. Thank you for having me. Well, so appreciate you. To all of our listeners, thank you so much for being with us. To my incredible producer, Paola Martini, so much gratitude to this team. We hope to see you again soon. Thanks, everyone. Did you love this episode and want to hear more? Head over to drkaliawaddles.com slash podcast where you can find more episodes on all things fertility.